Welcome to Time Out with the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. I had no women really to look up to as I was coming up the ladder at the NBA. The women that worked at the league at that time were principally either sort of mid-level managers, best case, or secretaries. And, you know, that was a solid, that made for a solitary journey for me, to be honest. The arrows are generally pointed in the right direction, so that's good news. You know, people like me wish sort of equality, (laughs) well, you know, will come quicker than I know it will. I am Dr. Dana K. Volker, a passionate educator, scholar, and former athlete helping to construct safe, positive, and health-promoting experiences for girls and women in sport. I'd like to welcome you to an episode of Let's Elevate Girls and Women in Sport podcast series brought to you by the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. Today, we are talking with Val Ackerman, the current commissioner of the Big East Conference. She was the founding president of the Women's National Basketball Association, the WNBA, a league founded in 1996 with its first season in 1997. She is a past president of USA Basketball, which oversees the U.S. men's and women's Olympic basketball program. She has had a storied and highly accomplished career in the sports industry. She is one of the few executives in sports to have held leadership positions in both men's and women's sports at every elite level, collegiate, professional, national, and international. Among her accolades, she is an inductee of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2021, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2011, and the Billie Jean King Contribution Award, now entitled a Leadership Award for her significant contributions to the development and advancement of women's sports. So welcome, Val. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Well, hi, Dana. Great to be here. One of the things I want to touch on first is that I understand that you worked with Jerry West, (laughs) who is a very big deal uh, anywhere, but especially here in West Virginia. And I learned that when you initially joined the NBA, your first phone message was from Jerry West. It's exactly kind of true. And you brought back a just a really incredible memory here. So when I got hired, my first job in sports was as a staff lawyer for the NBA. My duties included a heavy portion of them um, advising NBA general managers on salary cap matters. Okay. Um, in the NBA, no player contract can be approved unless the league office reviews it. Um, there's a host of things on the checklist. And so that put me in touch with these NBA GMs, a number of whom were former players. And one of them was Jerry West, who at that time was the GM of the Lakers. And I just, here I was this young lawyer, you know, thrown into this big, big pond (laughs) with these famous guys. And I remember, you know, coming back from lunch one day, this is before you had cell phones and your assistant would take a message and put it on a, while you were out pink slip and then put it on a spindle. So when you came Uh back from lunch, there could be all these messages. And, you know, early on, I I came back from lunch one day and there was a, my first phone call from Jerry West, you know, please call. And here I was with this, you know, imagine, I mean, somebody I grew up idolizing as a player. And now he's like, you know, he thinks I'm important and needs me to call him right away. Yes, sir. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It was was a big thrill to put it on. Yeah. Um, so do you still have that message? I must. I, I mean, I had that. I, I was telling, I had it like tacked up on my refrigerator yeah. magnet for like two years. 
hey, Jerry West called me and I maybe it's I, I keep a lot of things. So it may be in a souvenir box someplace. In it's my somewhere account. in the archives now. <laughs> How cool. Um, so, you know, just learning everything about your journey um, and sort of following, you know, growing up and, you know, becoming a, a professional and just sort of following um, everything that you've done for women's sports in particular. I've just become so enamored with that journey. Um and also because of what you've done just merely as a leader in general, um, you know, I feel like I have yeah, I have a daughter whose sport experiences, I think, are going to be or at least have a strong potential to be better than mine, you know, because of, of leaders and contributions of people like you. Um, and so just kind of starting at the beginning. So Title IX was put into law when you were 12 years old. Is that right? Yeah, uh, it was, I think, the summer before my um, right after I finished seventh grade. Okay. Seventh and eighth grade. So I was about that old. Exactly. And so I understand too, that, you know, your father was an athletic director who was all about, uh, you know, supporting girls programming at that time. And so I'm just wondering, you know, is that that young age, were you aware of the significance of Title IX at that time? Not, not at all. I mean, the answer is just as simple as that. Had no idea. Um, you know, 12 year old girls at that time didn't yeah. always follow the news. You were just sort of, you know, caught in your own universe. So I had no idea. It was really years later that I thought about it. Wow. You know, that that sort of was good timing for me. Um, and you noted my dad was the AD at my high school. Yeah. So um, at that time, girl sports were just, you know, kind of getting off the ground. And I, I'm sure my dad's not with me anymore, but I, I'm sure the notion that what he could do to help me um, wasn't lost on him. And, uh, and so, you know, certainly helped me in high school and then ultimately in college. The, the benefits of the law were, you know, really made me one of, a, one of the early beneficiaries. Yeah. That's just, it's so interesting. And it's probably the best way to go through it is for sort of this, you just, you just go through it. You're, you're there because, not because of a law, but you're there because you are worthy of participating. Um, and so not knowing is probably the best way to sort of go through that. It wasn't like you didn't have an opportunity and then suddenly you did. Um, it was, sounds like it was just a joyful athletic experience. Well, it's actually interesting because prior to that time, my opportunities were quite limited in my small hometown. I mean, I didn't, you know, there weren't girls sports opportunities at the grassroots level like there are today. I mean, now it's part of a young girl's upbringing, practically, to play on a soccer team or play on a, you know, bitty basketball team, Um, you know, pick a sport. And that opportunity said, we didn't have that in my town. My my junior school, which was seventh and eighth grade at that time, there were no sports for girls. The only offering was cheerleading. Yep. And I tell the story, I tried out for cheerleading because I felt like I should try out because it was the only thing they had. And I, I got cut. I mean, it was like they must have seen a, my heart wasn't in it when yeah. I did the cheer tryout. And but it, when I got to high school, you know, things were better. It was I played field hockey. I played basketball in the winter and then I ran track in the spring. And while I was there, in part because of my dad, other sports came online. Um, softball, for example, you know, um, cross country had been there. Golf and tennis kind of came later. Ice hockey came later. Okay. Um, and and now, you know, I don't know if they have volleyball now. It's one of the fastest growing sports for um, high school players now. Girls high school is volleyball. So, but that all came, you know, years later. Years later. Uh, but the sports I was most interested in, fortunately, there were offerings. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, and then at the University of Virginia, you split the one and only scholarship for women's basketball. That is true. At yeah. that time was one and one only. <laughs> and so, so when you, so when you look back it. on, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I mean, that was it. And then yeah. you know, grew every year. And by the time I left, everybody was getting something. Um, but it was, it was really, you know, uh, early, you know, early efforts there to kind of get women's sports, which were new at UVA. Women had only been admitted there um, a few years before I got on campus. And so, it, you know, there was a lot of walking that had to be done before the running could happen. And, and you know, I, it's much better now, but certainly we were, you know, my, my cohorts were definitely a part of the pioneer group. So when you look at your sport experiences, um, maybe those of your daughters, and then some of the athletes that you've, uh, you know, worked with recently. What do you what do you see as the biggest changes or most significant changes in girls and women's sport experiences over time? Well, volume. I mean, the number of girls who are playing sports again and making it just sort of be a natural part of their upbringing, their education, uh, their life experiences is just you know so much higher because the opportunities are plentiful. So that's number one, the increase in participation. Um, I think, you know, and that was what Title IX was mostly getting at. They want, you know, mm -hmm. the authors wanted girls to be able to have those experiences and all the life skills and educational outcomes, you know, that come from sports, hence the focus on high school and collegiate programs re receiving federal funding. Mm -hmm. So making a part of education, that's happened. Um, I think other outgrowths of Title IX, less direct, but I think clearly can look to Title IX as the reason why, are women interested in sports as consumers. So if you're going to a West Virginia, you know, men's sporting event or an NBA game or an NFL game, you look around the stands, there's plenty of women in the stands. So women are consuming sports um, in, in ways that didn't exist, you know, a long time ago. Um, number three, the rise of the elite pro leagues, yeah. I think, are Title IX driven. I mean, there would be no WNBA without what happened in women's college basketball. There'd be no NWSL without what happened in, you know, grassroots and high school and college soccer. Um, you know, the Olympic effort and our successes there as a country wouldn't have happened, but for the training that was made possible by you know, high school and college opportunities being opened up because of Title IX. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, I mean, you know, people like me sitting here talking to you, women who are leaders in sports. Yep. I mean, many of us played sports and wanted to stick with it. And so, you know, you see women now running leagues, they're at networks, um, they're at national governing bodies, they're, they're at brands, you know, the sponsors, you're so, lifeblood of sports, so important. And, you know, I, that leader, I, I think there's a direct connection as well to women in leadership and Title IX and sort of what Title IX did, you know, did to bring, you know, that level of interest to so many of us who have now made that our, our, our profession. And we're now seeing so many more women coaching men's sports as well, or being a part of the administration and organization of men's sports, um, which seems to be growing more and more as we get more examples of that being done. That's right. And again, I, you know, when I was coming up, the only job women seemed to have in sports were, were as coaches. Yeah. And, um, that, you know, that's where they were routed. Hey, you want to work in sports? You can be a coach. And you didn't see women administrators. You didn't see women 
you know, again, at the pro level or um, in the international space or in networks or at sponsors. And now that's all changed. So, you know, what's interesting for me is I, I've, I've heard, um, you know, you say before that you really didn't have a lot of women who were mentors, you know, in an, in an, at, in an executive level in sports. Um, and so how did you make that happen? Well, I mean, I just, you know, you just find a way, <laughs> you find a way. <laughs> I mean, I was, um, you're right. I had no women really to look up to as I was coming up the ladder at the NBA. I mean, uh, the women that worked at the league at that time were principally um, either sort of mid-level managers, best case, or secretaries. Um, and, you know, that was a solid, that made for a solitary journey for me, to be honest. Um, you know, my husband was very supportive of my work, including after I had my two daughters, our two daughters. Um, I sort of had my village, you know, my mother, my mother-in-law, my, you know, my caregiver, for the kids, you know, all made it possible for me to do it all, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it was really, really hard. And um, I think that's now better. Now that you have more women like me who've been through that, who know what it was like to be a working mom. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very under, I'm pretty understanding mm -hmm. <laughs> about people that I work with who have kids. Frankly, I think I'll add one thought here. Technology has made it easier. Okay. Because you can work from home now in ways that were not possible when I had my two daughters almost 30 years ago. I mean, you it was FaceTime all the way. You had to be in the office. And now, you know, you can email, you can be on a Zoom call. Of course, COVID changed everything in terms of hybrid work. And I think, you know, working moms have benefited from that, um, I don't know, almost forced flexibility in the workplace. And, um, and so, you know, times have changed, circumstances have changed. But, you know, for me, I just kind of put my head down and did what I thought my bosses needed me and wanted me to do. And, and that really made my, my career journey possible. That just, just my willingness to make the sacrifices. So you and then also just having the supports around you to sort of make it work. That's it. Yeah. That's it. What's been the most rewarding part of, of being a working mother? Well, I mean, you know, but the each has its own rewards. So working yep. through rewards, I mean, it's what we do with ourselves. It's how we define ourselves. It's how we earn, you know, earn a living. Um, I've met great people. You know, had some very cool things happen in my life because of my my profession. So, you know, that's been my work part. And then being a mom, there's nothing like being a mom. I mean, I have two daughters, Emily and Sally. Em is almost 30. Sally's almost 28. They're great. They're amazing. Um, you know, I, it was a, it's, it's a joy to be their parent. My, mm -hmm. my husband and I know feels the same way and, you know, but it is hard. Yeah. You know, anyone listening here, don't think it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Your job requires travel to say that piece. Cause my job over the year has involved a lot of travel and, uh, COVID was actually kind of a nice break from the travel that, you know, is required in this business. So um, that part's hard, yeah. but, you know, um, but the rewards are clearly there because of, you know, what each sort of sides of side of yourself, you know, brings to, brings to your life experience. 
And I've even heard, um, you know, your daughter say in an interview that they never watching you, they never felt like there wasn't anything that they couldn't do themselves, which I think is just so powerful. Um, and, and just, you know, being a model in that way as well. And so it seems, you know, we probably to have the same impact on more girls, we have to figure out how to get more girls and women into these leadership spaces. And I'm wondering how you think that that's accomplished in the sports industry moving forward. How do we do that? How do we recruit more? How do we help women and girls to sort of gain that entry that can be so difficult, easier than before, but still difficult? Yeah, no, but it's happening. It's yeah. much easier than before to get in. And I think, frankly, the, you know, the fruits of Title IX continue in terms of as these women graduate from college, they've played sports. If they want to stay in sports, they have that on their calling card. Hey, I was a student athlete at, you know, State U. Mm-hmm. And employers, I think, really look favorably upon athletes because they, you know, especially employers who are athletes because they know what the kid went through. Right. <laughs> to that degree. And uh, and so I think it's happening. And, and that's critical because as you get more women in the pipeline, the op, you know, there's always a funnel, right? People, you know, not everyone becomes the leader. People drop out, et cetera. But, you know, if you have more in the uh, pipeline, then it stands to reason that you're going to have more women who have opportunities to be leaders. And I, you know, I would just um, say for those women, they just got to work hard like I did. You know, yeah. it's an easy path to run a company or... Uh, being a leader role, um, you got to make sacrifices and work hard and do things right, and you know, endear yourself to people who make decisions about your future. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and every now and again, you know, um, there are you, you get to see outside groups who are, you know, uh, contributing to the cause. And I'll, I'll, I'll cite in college sports, women leaders in college sports, which is the name of a trade association. It's the largest trade association for women who work in college sports. Fantastic group. I was on their board for a few years. Their CEO is a dynamo named Patty Phillips. And her job is what you just, you know, asked me about, the advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um to get more women into sports, to get more of us in leader positions, that to create the professional development programming that gives women some extra skills so that when an opportunity becomes available, they interview the right way, they've got the right background, et cetera. So again, these outside groups can also be of great benefit. And we're certainly seeing that with um, women leaders in college sports. So, you know, the recipe being that preparing, maximally preparing women to pursue these roles in addition to creating these these opportunities and making space. And there's more now than there ever have been. Um, so, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what it was like to, uh, you know, launch the WNBA. I, I imagine that came with, you know, several challenges. And I'm just wondering, what did selling people on the idea of a WNBA look like? Like, what did it look like at that time to advocate for women's sports at the highest level? Um, long story. Sure. I don't have time to tell you the okay. whole story. <laughs> the answer to your question is we we had some we had some tailwinds mm-hmm. that helped us because at the time, you know, the NBA made the decision to be in the women's basketball business. Women's college basketball was showing some very impressive gains. This is the early 90s. UConn had sort of burst onto the scene as this national powerhouse circa 93, 94. And that in turn energized um, the East Coast media and in particular ESPN because UConn was in their backyard. 
So we started to see more coverage. The women's final four was gaining some traction. The rivalry between UConn and Tennessee at that time was massive. You had sort of Pat Summit, may she rest in peace, going up against Gino Oriema every year on national television. They got a network slot even then. So people were paying attention. Um, girls basketball was uh, the number one team sport for girls at the high school level at that time. It's now been eclipsed in the last year or two by volleyball. Keep an eye on volleyball. But we had good numbers to tout. Um, and, you know, the NBA's business was very good. And David Stern, super empowered, super visionary, said, we're doing this. And, um, you know, I I used to sort of call myself his instrumentality <laughs> because he was a guy that got the owners to do this. He said, we got to be we got to be we got to be thinking about women. You know, the future of our league is going to rest in part on our appeal to women. And what better way to support women than to have a women's league? And so he was our best sales guy and, you know, brought the networks and the sponsors along with him. And, you know, we, and then last but not least, we um, launched on the back of the Atlanta Olympics in 96, which were a crowning moment for women's team sports in this country. You had gold medals there in basketball, women's soccer, and and uh, softball. So it was being billed as sort of the Olympics of the women. So we had that going for us. And then here we were launching the league, you know, with all that having transpired. So... In some ways, yeah, there were naysayers around every corner. You know, things got tougher a few years in as sort of the numbers began to settle. But, uh, you know, it was not, you know, and, and I thank my former boss here. We, we had a good sales proposition and the NBA was going to back this to the hilt. And so, you know, it, it, it happened. And uh, now 26 years later, you know, the league is going and growing and, I think remains a model for uh, for women's professional team sports in this country. So there was momentum. There was working really, really hard. There was advocacy, not taking no for an answer. Um, which I think there's just continued momentum, as you said, for some of the same things to happen moving forward. And and speaking of the future, what is your biggest hope for the future with respect to girls and women's sports? And you can even speak to maybe if there's a, you know, goal for the future of, uh, you know, in, in your subsequent role as uh, the commissioner of the Big East, what do you want to do moving forward? What do you hope will change? Well, I think the arrows are generally pointed in the right direction. So that's good news. You know, people like me wish sort of equality. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, will come quicker than I know it will. I mean, I look at the WNBA and the NBA, for example, they're not equal. I mean, if you look at pay structures, that's sort of one of the best indicators. They're nowhere close. And why is that? Well, because the NBA attracts more fans. It's that simple. They have more people that come to their games. They pay a lot of money for their tickets. Sponsors see a value of that. And importantly, their television ratings are really, really great. And so when that happens, the dollars come rolling in. And that hasn't happened for the WNBA because the fan interest generally is much lower. So, you know, it would be nice if that could be the same. Yep. Um, you know, a model for that for me is women's tennis. I sort of always thought of that as the holy grail. You know, you get these players who are basically making the same as the men. And why? Because they're bringing in the same levels of interest with ratings, 
you know, et cetera, especially around the grand slams. They're sort of, you know, partners, if you will, in terms of bringing people, you know, bringing people along. So I, I hope that can happen in in women's team sports. Um, I hope it could happen. The final fours, men and women aren't the same. I mean, the men bring in 18 million viewers on TV. The women, it's like five men are doing in a dome for 75,000 people. Women are selling out an NBA building, which is fine, you know. Um, so I, you know, th- things like that, I think the um, economic outcomes, I think are of interest to me. And I sort of find myself wondering, can those be, you know, when, when will it, when will it be the case that those economic outcomes, the revenues generated, which is based on the number of fans supporting it can be sort of more level. That would be my sort of question. I think on sort of the other fronts, it's pretty good. It's occasional skirmishing. Um, but I, you know, I see the glasses more half full than empty there. But okay. again, how, how can these commercial income uh, outcomes be improved? So in garnering more fan support, where do we start there? $65,000 question. You know, it's what what is what mix of culture? Yep. All supporting men versus women. Yep. When it comes to athletic entertainment, you know, opportunities. You know, how much marketing do you need to sell something? At what point does the product sell itself? I mean, I was at the NBA um, working there when, you know, Michael Jordan came onto the scene, um, really burst onto the scene. I mean, he was a rookie, but he, you know, he sort of exploded. Michael, Magic and Larry were the guys. Um, I worked on the first dream team that played in Barcelona, which sort of, you know, kind of like set the world on fire and sort of catapulted the NBA's international business. And, you know, we just haven't seen the same interest levels in women's basketball globally. Yet. Yet. Yeah. Yet. So, you know, what will it take? I don't know. I mean, it's some yeah. combination of the right players, the right rivalries, society moving itself further along, you know, sort of. Uh, but that's the market for you. Like, there's no gender equity when it comes to the mm-hmm. marketplace. Yep. So, you know, just sort of looking back on on your career, we've talked a little bit about, you know, future hopes as, as you continue your path. Um, is there anything in your career you feel like you would want have wanted to do differently? You know, I, yeah, good, good question. I don't know that I have have the right answers for that. I mean, I think we all when we're sort of got it, when we're coming up the ladder and we have our heads down, we probably take ourselves a little bit too seriously. We don't laugh enough. We don't say, hey. Oh, what the heck! Right now, I, I do more of like what the hecking at this stage <laughs> my than I did 25 years ago. Um, everything mattered then, and everything was so important, and I didn't smile as much. And uh, and so now, you know, I maybe I wonder like if I'd been a little lighter touch around, you know, around others or whatever. Then you know, would that have changed anything? I probably would have relaxed more, had a more relaxing. But I, I don't think so. I think I. You know, I did what I was programmed to do and, um, you know, had uh, people that supported me along the way. And now I, you know, I do think a lot now about like your legacy yeah. and how what impact you make on people and, you know, wanting to be positive and constructive, especially during COVID, because that was really a test of leaders. You know, just we all we had to stay optimistic for our staffs. 
And we, none of us had any idea what we were doing. So we had to be resourceful about finding the right doctors or advisors to tell us, hey, do, am I supposed to play this game or how do I do this? And uh, I think I think we did pretty well, you know, coming out of the pandemic as a conference and an industry. Um, so I'm not sure I regret much there. But I don't know. I think at this point, you know, my life, I can't look back too much. I got to just sort of keep looking ahead keep and, moving forward, and hoping I make good decisions because a lot of people are counting on me to make good decisions. Yeah. And am I correct in that you haven't written a book? I know you've written lots of columns, lots of sort of editorials, comment pieces, but not a book, correct? I have not written a book. That might happen. Okay. (laughs) If you do, I'm definitely reading it. (laughs) All right. We'll sell at least one copy. Okay. (laughs) On top of more millions. So keep that in mind. Yeah. At least one sold. So you're guaranteed at least one. Yeah. Thank you so much. I just so appreciate uh, hearing your perspectives and just your candid responses and authenticity and just sharing with us what an incredible um, personal and professional journey. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate uh, yeah. having a chance to talk to you. Keep Thank up you. Thank you for listening and learning from Commissioner Ackerman. An important question from here. What are you doing in the sports spaces that you're a part of to support the voices, the experiences, and the leadership of girls and women? Thanks again for taking time out with the School of Sports Sciences in the WVU College of Applied Human Sciences. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest on Time Out, be sure to reach out at cahstimeout at mail.wvu.edu. To keep up with future episodes, visit cahs.wvu.edu. Stay active and be well.